Before we get started, we'll give a little shout out to our sponsor, Strange Adornments. She creates these absolutely beautiful rope necklaces with bones and beads. They're fantastic. I own three. Her products are so amazing. They sell out very quickly and you have to be very fast when you get to her site. Find her at Strange Adornments on TikTok and Instagram, S-T-R-A-N-G-E-A-D-O-R-N-M-E-N-T-S. Beautiful work. I have several of her pieces. So if you're into strange, kind of dark, esoteric jewelry, check her out. The Devil's Dirt Star podcast was created for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings from the Devil's Dirt Star, a podcast for the esoteric and strange. Well, welcome back, Dirtlings, to the Devil's Dirt Star. I'm your host, Big Spoon, and I'm here with my co-host, Ellsworth. Hello. So today, my dear Dirtlings, we are going to talk to you about the major Odauchi vendetta incidents in Japan, aka three truly epic tales of revenge. We'll follow the historic timeline, starting with two shorter tales about brothers seeking retribution, ending with the magnum opus of stories about vengeance, the tale of the 47 Ronin. The 47 Ronin? The 47 Ronin. (laughs) (laughs) They were extra gassy. Please don't come at us. Well, when I was looking it up, and I'm going to do my best not to butcher absolutely everything that I say, it's Ronin. Oh. Yeah, but I'm... Ronan. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, I, oh wow. I've been mispronouncing that for a while. Well, we're going to do Ronan for today because I'm going to forget later. Yeah. (laughs) We'll do our best. Also, Ellie, she's going to go ahead and lead us even deeper into the dirt star and show us how prevalent these stories became over time in Japanese culture. And they've invaded the theater world, modern cinema, and so much more. Hollywood, of course, ruined it at one point. What? I didn't we'll do that. Yeah, we'll get to it. I didn't do that part of the research, so I didn't. I didn't see how Hollywood did Hollywood butcher it. You know, Hollywood just did what they do to every beautiful cultural incident. Oh, <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, uh, that tracks. So, do we kind of just want to dive right in? Yeah, we're gonna go like I said in order of events here, and I could not believe how early the first major event was. This is coming from a sassy article about the Soga Brothers, and it was from an art auction site online. It had the best story. I was so surprised of all the sources that I found. I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. Why not? Whatever. And of course, there's like a bunch of paintings of the Soga Brothers. They were all sold, so don't even bother. (laughs) Yeah. So here we go. This is the story of Judo and Goro, or Soga Skenari and Soga Tokimune and the vendetta that took place in feudal Japan in 1193. Since the 7th century, Japan was ruled by the Fujiwara family. That is until the 12th century when two other clans came into the picture, the Minamoto and the Taeda. These two families kicked the Fujiwara empire out of power, reducing the once emperor essentially to a figurehead. So now, the Minamoto and Taeda families could finally concentrate on fighting against one another. At first, the Minamoto had the upper hand, but in 1159, the Taeda, under the direction of their leader, Kiyomori, crushed the opposing family and ran them out of Kyoto. 
things took a turn after the death of the Taeda leader Kiyomori in 1181. The Minamoto finally got ahead of their enemy during the naval battle of Dan no Uro four years later in 1185. Their leader, Yoritomo, then became the military ruler of Japan, what is known as the Shogun. As a leader, Yoritomo ruled recklessly. He did unify the land, but through the execution of anyone appearing to have ties to the Taeda and their bloodline, along with those he deemed a threat to his position of power. Ito Juro Skeshika, who was head of the Ito family, found alliance with the Taeda clan. Ito had a son, Kawazu Saburo Skeyasu, who was also a sumo wrestler. One day, Skeyasu was murdered by his cousin Kuro Sketsune in the mountains of Hakone. Left behind were his two young sons, Goro and Juro, who were just three and five years old at the time, respectively. Skeyasu's widow would later marry a man by the name of Soga. He adopted the elder son, Juro, while Goro was sent to a Buddhist temple to become a monk. Not really something he wanted to do, but, you know, whatever. Like sending your daughter to be a nun kind of thing? <sighs> I think so. <laughs> From that what sucks. I've been reading, he was like, eh, not cool. Yeah. Regardless of being separated and living a separate existence, the brothers had other plans in mind. They wanted to avenge their father's death and made sure that they would be prepared when the right moment presented itself. Finally, that moment came when Sketsune was outside of his mansion, hunting with the shogun Yoritomo. When Juro learned of this little hunting excursion, he hopped on a horse and rode like hell to Oiso, where Goro resided as a monk. During a thunderstorm in the middle of the night, Juro and Goro made it back to the hunting camp at the slopes of Mount Fuji. There, they discovered Sketsune, either in the presence of a sex worker or completely tanked. Two things can be true at once. The rest of the camp awoke to the commotion, and a fight ensued between Sketsune's retainers and the Soga brothers. Juro, just 22 years old, ended up being killed during the fight, and Goro was captured by a sumo wrestler named Goromaru. The shogun decided at that moment to have Goro, 20, executed for his crimes. Now that the Soga bloodline was cut short, the vendetta was finally over. Did that mean that the family line died? Exactly. I don't know if that's, I guess fortunate depends on how you're looking at it. (laughs) I don't know a whole lot about Japanese vendetta, but what I do know is that if the bloodline is over, there's no more fighting. Yeah. (laughs) That's what it seems to be anyway. I wonder if Goro from... Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom is named after this guy. Right? Because he, he's like a sumo, like, I mean, he's of a people. They're called the Gorons, but they're like yeah. sumo-like people. Very much so in build, yeah. you know? Yeah. I agree. That's interesting. I wonder if we can find, like, what the inspo was for that yeah, character. I, that's interesting. That's very cool. For our second shallow dive, and most of this information came from an article on Wikipedia, we are going to learn about the Igagoe Vendetta. This incident occurred in the town of Iga Ueno, Japan, near Iga Pass in 1634, 441 years after the Soga brothers avenged the death of their father. In this story, Watanabe Kazuma seeks revenge for the murder of his younger brother, Watanabe Gendayu, who was the favorite retainer of Ikeda Tadao the lord over Okayama fiefdom. You see, in the year 1630, Watanabe Gendayu was sought after by a childhood friend named Kawaii Matagoro, who was also a young retainer of Ikeda. 
Kawaii had the hots for Watanabe, but his advances were rejected. Some people don't handle rejection too well, and apparently Kawaii is one of them because he solved this predicament by murdering Watanabe. Like, wow. After killing the object of his desire, Kawaii escaped to Edo, now present-day Tokyo, and resided under the protection of Ando Masayoshi, who was a Hatamoto, or high-ranking samurai, in service to the Tokugawa shogunate. And the shogunate being a military administration system at the time in Japan. And they are also known as Bakufu. Ikeda attempted to bring Kawaii to justice, but his wish was never realized. In 1632, on his deathbed, Ikeda had but one request. For my memorial service, above everything else, offer on my behalf the head of Kawaii Matagoro. The Bakufu ordered Kawaii into exile, and he was expected to submit to the shogun's orders, as was the moral code of a samurai, or bushido, and preserve the family name. By this time, in 1634, Watanabe Kazuma was 18 years old and hungry for vengeance. Now on his own murder mission, he left the Ikeda family to look for the newly exiled Kawaii and eventually found his target in the city of Iga Ueno, located near Mie Prefecture. It's worth mentioning that Watanabe was joined by his brother-in-law, Araki Mataiman, a renowned swordsman and samurai. After receiving some good intel, Watanabe and Araki, along with two other men, proceeded to lie in wait in a nearby shop for Kawaii, who they expected to arrive at Kagiya Crossroads en route from Osaka. When Kawaii appeared, he was with his uncle, Jinzeiman, and a few others, but that was a non-issue for Araki, who absolutely fucked them up upon arrival. He didn't dare touch Kawaii, though, as this was a job for the older brother of Gendayu. The laws demanded a duel with no unnecessary deaths nor interference from others present, and then they became spectators. This duel went on for six hours. I really hope this was a mistranslation somewhere in the history books and that this fight was over in six minutes, because fucking A, that's a workout. No matter how tired Watanabe got, Araki didn't intervene, although he did offer him words of encouragement and prevented Kawaii from escaping one time. Supposedly, what remained of Kawaii's men also stood by, respectfully watching without a fuss in order to keep the battle between the samurai honorable. Finally, Watanabe delivered a near kill shot, slicing an artery. As Kawaii fell, the older brother of the slain, Watanabe Gendayu, dealt him a mortar blow to the neck. In order for this duel to be considered lawful in a more official capacity, it had to be reported to the government. Otherwise, the incident would be criminalized. So it had to be an official thing like, hey, this was a duel. We did a thing. Um, we abided by the law. Totally legal. <laughs> yes, totally legal duel. <laughs> so that's exactly what everyone did. And the vendetta was recorded as a lawful one, with Watanabe Kazuma avenging his brother's death. The whole shebang was entered into the chronicle of the central government, known as the true history of Tokugawa. And for our third and final story, we are going to talk about the revenge of the 47 Ronin, a true case of when you least expect it, which you obviously know you saw the movie. <laughs> well, the movie's not really. No, <laughs> not. It, is it like? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's mythical creatures and witches in it to give you an idea of the historical accuracy. I had no idea. I thought maybe it was a period piece. I was incorrect. I should have known. Kiana's in it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I should have known better. 
The tale of the 47 Bronin is one of the most famous in Japanese history, and it is a true story. During the Tokugawa era in Japan, the country was ruled by the shogun, or highest military official, in the name of the emperor. Under him were a number of regional lords, the daimyo, each of whom employed a contingent of samurai warriors. All of these military elites were expected to follow the code of Bushido, the way of the warrior. Among the demands of Bushido were loyalty to one's master and fearlessness in the face of death. In 1701, Higashiyama, who was the emperor of Japan at the time, sent imperial representatives from Kyoto to the shogun's court at Edo, which is now, again, modern-day Tokyo. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I've also been mispronouncing it. I thought it was Edo. <laughs> no, just Edo. So, some of the pronunciations are actually a lot simpler yeah. than I thought. <laughs> it's kind of fun. The master of ceremonies for this event was Kira Yoshinaka, a high-ranking shogunate official, and he was there to train the daimyos, aka feudal lords, in court etiquette. The problem here is that Kira was an ungrateful little bitch towards the daimyos who were there to perform alternate attendance duties, which was required of them, spending alternating years attending the shogun's court at Edo when they weren't living in their own domains. The two unlucky men were Asano Naganori of Ako and Kame-sama of Tsumano, who were sent to look after Higashiyama's envoys, or, again, representatives. They both offered Kira gifts, and he in turn did the opposite of showing them good etiquette. Kira instead treated Asano and Kame like total garbage simply because he thought the gifts that they were presenting to him were also total garbage. Kame's retainers were reported to have secretly paid Kira a fuckload of money in exchange for him behaving more respectfully, which apparently worked. Unfortunately for Asano, he became the primary target of Kira's shitty personality because he didn't cough up any money as a bribe. Some records say that everything came to a head when Kira called Asano either a mannerless country bumpkin or an ill-mannered rural boar. Which sounds like something somebody in our own town would say. It does. Country bumpkin. Yeah. <laughs> Asano was fucking over it, though, and drew his wakizashi, or short sword, in an attempt to show Kira what country bumpkins are truly made of. But he only gave him a gash to the head. This wasn't even worth it, though, because due to shogunate law, you cannot draw a sword within the walls of Edo Castle. It was strictly forbidden. So the 34-year-old Asano was ordered to commit seppuku, which is kind of a lot. For it's very interesting. Yeah. The, the stuff um, from what I was able to find, um, a lot of the articles were like, well, we, they didn't know why he attacked him. So like that like specific quote is really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And also it is, you know, it was kind of like a bitch move, like getting a little gash yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But the fact that you cannot draw a sword in this castle, mm -hmm. that is the thing that did him in. And yep. For the uninitiated, seppuku is when you... Disembowel yourself. Yes. Thank you. I, I was going to use uh, not accurate terms for that. I was going <laughs> to think, you gut yourself. <laughs> yes. It was an uh, unpleasant way to die. Self-disembowelment with yep. a short sword. After the death of the daimyo, the shogunate took over his domain in Ako, leaving Asano's family destitute. This also caused another awful thing to happen. You see, when their master dies, samurai are supposed to follow suit in death or they will face dishonor. Of the 320 warriors left in Asano's wake, 47 of them decided to live and seek vengeance for their leader's death, and they would forever be known as the 47 Bronin, 
masterless samurai. So more than 200 of them also committed. They did. Really? Wow. Yes, because they did not want to be disgraced and, well, they followed their leader. Yeah. One of Asano's retainers, Oishi Yoshio, stepped up to lead the remaining Bronin, and they all made a secret pact to annihilate Kira, no matter what it took to get the job done. But Kira wasn't stupid, unfortunately, so he fortified his home and upped the number of guards protecting it. The Ronin were patient, though, knowing that one day Kira would chill out a bit and let his guard down. In a clever move to shorten that process, the Ronin disbanded and started living new lives in various domains. Most of them took ordinary jobs, such as merchants and doing hard labor. One even strategically married a woman whose family built Kira's castle so he could get his hands on the blueprints. Their fearless leader, Oishi, on the other hand, decided he had way better things to do in order to pass the time, like getting absolutely shit-faced and spending serious coin on sex workers. In order to kind of create an, um, like a new persona yeah. so that people believed he was... The part. Yeah, so he was known around town as this drunk, not a threat, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, one day, another samurai from the Satsuma province recognized Oishi while he was chilling in the street and definitely drunk. He proceeded to kick him in the face and mock him. Something to note here is that previous to this whole shtick, Oishi divorced his wife and sent his youngest children away in order to protect them but his eldest son chose to stay with his dad, wanting to help Oishi execute this weirdly concocted murder plot. On the evening of December 14th, 1702, and just to note, this is 68 years after the Igagawe incident and 509 years after the Soga vendetta, the 47 Ronin met in the city of Honjo near Edo in preparation for the incursion. They assigned the youngest Ronin with the task of returning to Akko after the attack to tell their tale. Visibly armed to the teeth and not giving any fucks whatsoever, the 46 remaining let all of Kira's neighbors know what was up, marching in with swords and ladders. Kira was about to meet the business end of a battering ram. They surrounded his house and began scaling the walls without a sound, the snowfall muting every footstep. The Ronin easily overpowered the oblivious night watchmen, and once this first phase of the attack was achieved, the deep and foreboding explosion of war drums sounded, signaling the Ronin to storm the mansion from all sides. Some of Kira's samurai were more than vulnerable, having been asleep at the moment of attack, not even having time to put their damn shoes on and forcing them to fight barefoot in the snow. The lesson here is that you are ill-prepared unless you wear shoes to bed, dirtlings. Wearing only undies himself, Kira ran out of his mansion and locked himself inside a storage shed. After the Ronin searched room to room for an entire hour, they found that idiot still inside the shed amongst piles of coal, never daring to make a move or plan his own escape. How Kira's story ends is utter poetry. Oishi, the decided leader of the Ronin, recognized him by the scar on the side of his head, the one that Asano marred Kira with one year earlier and where his journey for revenge began. Oishi, dropping to his knees before Kira, presented him with the wakazashi, the very same one Asano used to disembowel himself with. Kira, trembling in fear, must have given him a look because Oishi realized that he was not about to go out honorably or on a high note. Oishi took his moment of retribution and decapitated Kira. 
that sounds unsanitary. Um, I, <laughs> I guess it's probably oh not your God. worst concern at the time, but I wonder if they, they must've cleaned it. This yeah. is like a year later. Yeah. But they didn't have like the decontamination <laughs> methods that we have today. You could oh, get, no. you could get an infection. <laughs> well, well the point I know, <laughs> I think I'm missing your point more than you're missing mine. (laughs) Astoundingly, all 46 of the Ronin came out of this ambush alive, having only four warriors injured and still able to walk. As for Kira's men, the death toll is reported to be as many as 40 samurai. At dawn, word had already spread about the 47 Ronin and their successful attack at the Kira mansion. Crowds cheered for them as the men strode into the Sengakuji Temple in Edo, where their master had been put to rest the year prior. After rinsing the blood from Kira's severed head, Oishi proudly presented it in front of Asano's grave. It was there that the Ronin waited to be arrested for their crimes. The Bafuku were the ones tasked with deciding the fate of the 46 Ronin that attacked Kira's mansion. While the fallen samurai awaited their fate, they were divvied up amongst four daimyo families, the Hosokawa, Mari, Mitsuno, and Matsu Daeda. Although the Ronin became overnight national heroes for truly and bravely living by the code of Bushido, they weren't granted clemency. On February 4th, 1703, 46 of the 47 Ronin were ordered to die by seppuku, including Oishi's son. One example of something that 47 Ronin got incorrect. The movie? Wait, the son the son was allowed to be free to continue on the bloodline in the movie. It was Americanized. It was Americanized. <laughs> they were buried near their master, Asano, at the Senkuji Temple, and one of the site's first visitors was the man who had kicked and mocked Oishi, the samurai from Satsuma. He apologized for disgracing Oishi and later took his own life. As for the fate of the 47th Ronin, his faith is not entirely known. According to a few sources, though, after he returned to Akko to tell the tale of the attack on Kira's mansion, he was pardoned by the shogun because he was so young. It is said he lived to the age of 87. Okay, so maybe maybe, it maybe was 47 him. Ronin did get that correct. So, yes. I believe in the movie it was Oishi's son, but I could be wrong. Um, they could have made it that. Yeah, and they could have done that because it, it just matched up better. Yeah, but yes. He's like Oishi's son is the only outsider. He's not technically a Ronin. So what's interesting is he parted. I wonder how young this guy was because he was fine with executing a 16 year old. Mm. Or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. Oh, man. Or is it true? We don't know. <laughs> Today, the Senkuji Temple in Tokyo is a sacred place that many visit to pay their respects to the 47 Ronin. And lastly, this temple is where you can still view the original receipt brought by Kira's friends. They were going to need it in order to claim his head. Yikes. I really want to see this receipt. Is it stone? Is it wood? I don't know. I don't know either. I would, uh, I mean, if they can still... Hmm. Weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's also weird... But you get a receipt for that. There's a Wait, receipt for your head. It it's it kind of seems like a rebate. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you get your mail in rebate. 30% off. 30% is your head. Go to Senkuji and <laughs> Oh my god. It's like getting a rebate for your tires or something. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So that's it. Kind of yeah. crazy. That's intense. Yeah. 
So now do we want to get into all the interesting like art and theater? Yeah. So um, there are dozens and dozens of reproductions in art via um, plays and film and opera and comic books. And it's, it is a very, very popular story from Japan. And it is, I mean, historically was kind of known as a thing that if you're if your studio is failing, then you just put out a, a film about the Chuchinguru because it was so well-loved that it almost always did well. So it is kind of like a story with the perfect formula. Everybody knows it. They see it as, a, as an example of Japanese excellence. Oh. And we'll get to why at a point in history um, that led to it being banned. So, oh, what? Um, in a paper by Henry Smith of Columbia University, uh, he actually references a Japanese philosopher named Soromi Shosuke. And this philosopher said, if you study uh, Shushingura long enough, you will understand everything about the Japanese. Now, in this paper, Smith actually kind of picks apart that argument and disagrees and says that it's an example of humanity as a whole and that that comment is kind of an example of. Um, nationalistic exceptionalism, which he disagrees with. However, that comment by Shosuke really stuck with me. Um, I'm absolutely in no way, shape, or form an expert on Japanese history or culture, but I can see where the comment stems from. And I think anyone who is familiar, even with the stereotypes of Japanese culture, seeing how the story of the the Shusengura is, is very exemplary of, you know, the dedication and loyalty and honor that Japanese culture really tends to exemplify. Yeah. Um, and it has been, you know, popular since it happened in, in the very beginning of the 16th century. So of the first reproductions, you have to take these details with a grain of salt because there's really not a lot of solid evidence for them. A lot of it's word of mouth and rumor. There's not a lot of conflicting uh, accounts and, and limited information, especially considering the time period that it started. Right. Um, you know, the I'm going to share all this information. I'm not going to caveat what could be true, or what couldn't be true, because there's a lot of it's 50-50. You know, you can do more digging if you want to. Don't come at me. I'm also going to try to pronounce things correctly. I won't. So you've um, been doing great. Don't come at me. Well, we'll see. <laughs> years of anime. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly, I actually didn't start watching anime really until a few years ago. I did. Oh, that's right. I, my mom did have me learn the basics of Japanese as a child. I don't remember any of it except like the first six numbers, but everything is in twos, yeah. <laughs> like two letters. It's like couplings. You usually don't pronounce the U at the end of things, but it's still like a, uh. yeah, it's a very, oh. yeah. I was teaching myself how Americans say tsunami mm-hmm. and how the Japanese say tsunami. Mm-hmm. I figured out the difference this morning. I just have to tell you, quick little sidebar. Yeah. So when we go to say an S noise or <laughs> an S sound, there's kind of like a little tunnel when we do it and we go, mm-hmm. they actually, I believe, put their tongue to the roof of their mouth and then do it. So it's su for us or tsu or tsunami. That makes su. sense. Yeah. yeah. It's a little more tsunami. forceful. Yeah. 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 Because I can't believe the amount of words in Japanese where if you don't pronounce that T... You could be talking about pandas or you could be talking about something entirely different. <laughs> it's, if you get into um, like Mandarin, it's even more like that is just one of the most complex languages. Um, I, I find like, yeah, I just <laughs> obviously, I mean, I guess it's, you know, Asian languages are just very different than Latin based languages. Or, um, but it's it seems, yeah, there's a lot of just a different it was built differently. Than, yeah. Than ours. And the technique for speaking is like 
That's why it's so hard. I mean, like, there's, like, the joke that it's hard for um, Asians to pronounce, like, L's and R's. But, I mean, if you look at us trying to pronounce, you know, it's that's just what happens when you, like, (laughs) or Germans, like, you know, they're very good at their hard, like, yeah, and, like, we can't. No. No. (laughs) Very different. Different worlds. We're just butchering everything. (laughs) So um, with the, the story of the Tushangura, the public, um, as they do to this day, immediately started romanticizing the event. You know, they, it was just the beautiful drama. People love the beautiful drama. So the very first play, which was called The Night Attack at Dawn by the Soga, came out in Ido only 12 days after the Ronin died. Not even two weeks. Now, Wait. at this time, <laughs> kabuki of these kinds of events were not legal. They were uh, oh. any contemporary events. You could not do a play on contemporary events. Why? Um, I think it was just kind of to probably keep more drama from it unfolding. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So Star rumors. The, the play was immediately shut down, which is why there's not a whole lot of evidence behind it. I mean, there's like, there seems to be enough to lead to the idea that, that this did happen, but the play was shut down so quickly. The strong evidence for its existence is really minimal. Now, from that point, in order to avoid further problems with the censors, kabuki plays and uh, companies were kind of, they stayed away from anything that could be perceived as the 47 Ronin, especially the night attack at Dawn by the Soga was pretty clear, but there were other ones that were, they even tried putting them in different time periods. But if it was even remotely clear that that's what it was about, they were just like, no, you can't do that. Wow. Now... According to 47ronin.com, because um, Bunraku were not censored like Kabuki were, they had a little more freedom. And only a few years after the attack, a man who's known as the Shakespeare of Japan, Chikamatsu Motomiyon, composed a three-act play called Goban Taiki. And he changed a few parts, one of them being that it took place in the 14th century to separate it from the actual event, but it was it got away with playing. Although... We'll kind of get a little more into why Bunraku was able to get away with it more, um, that it's a type of puppet play. Oh, um, yeah. So it is, they're very elaborate. I highly recommend you look them up and watch them. It's very classic. We'll get more into it. But in his paper about the Tushingura story, Smith mentions the earliest known work of fiction based on the Akko Vendetta. It was called uh, Keisei Burozakura and is by an Osaka author, Nishizawa Ipu. It is worth noting that I Googled his references for this specific title and I could not find anything. When I looked at the name of the author and the title of the book, Google just said no search results. That's it didn't weird. Even, yeah. So not to say it doesn't exist. No, um, I'm sure. Smith's paper did come out in the 90s. So it's possible that there are paper, there's a paper trail of this and it's just not on Google. But if it does, it's certainly obscure. So according to Smith in this story by Apu, the plot is changed almost to a point of parody with no romantic heroism. Um, I believe it takes place in a pleasure house. Oh, it's, just, it's just, you know, it's certainly a lot more or a lot more comedic and no romanticizing of the heroism. And so I could go on within the, you know, 40 years following this event on all the different like editions of plays or, or variations of it that came out. Between the incident in 1701 to the Treasury of the Loyal Retainers, which is one of the more well-known first plays in 1748, there were dozens of other productions. Some were parody, some were drama, some were romantic. But because there's limited information and a plethora of other examples that we have to get to, I'm not going to go into too much detail with those. And I also don't want to get too into the, into the weeds about the Edo period because that's just in itself is, is really, really interesting. 
So Kamadeon Shushingura, The Treasury of the Loyal Retainers, is an 11-act Bunraku play from 1748. And it is one of the more popular Japanese plays. If you look up plays about the Shushingura, this is one of the first ones that comes up. It's an 11-act play. It, it's just very well-known, and a lot of things kind of play off of the way it's written. So to explain a little bit more about what Bunraku is, um, it's a form of traditional Japanese puppet theater. It started as early as the 1500s. Didn't really get super popular, though, and historically, evidence-wise, doesn't really show up a whole lot until the mid to late 1600s. There are three types of performers in Buranku. There is the ninjizukai, the puppeters, the taiyu, the chanters, and the shamuzen, the musicians. If you've never heard of Bunraku, again, I recommend you watch it. It's fun. It is, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt. It is a very old-style performance, so it's not going to be super flashy, but the puppets are super elaborate. Sometimes the heads were super mechanical, so they'd actually make it so in plays where there were demons, the face could just flash into the face of a demon. Oh, that's so um, cool. And there are, there are multiple people controlling each puppet. So if you watch some of the shows now, you can kind of see people in black behind the puppet getting it to move around. A lot of the things described the puppets as small. I don't know what they're comparing them to, but I didn't think they were small. I thought they were huge because it took, I mean, they're not the size of a person, mm-hmm. but they're Bigger big. than what I'm picturing. When I think puppet, I guess I'm thinking hand puppets. So they're yeah. they're large, you know, and they're the kind of puppets that have like the sticks around the hands and like multiple mechanisms to get them to move in certain ways. And they're very elaborately detailed, just painstakingly created. They're really beautiful dolls. That's so and, cool. And, and the shamisen, the musicians, the type of music from the few plays that I watched is very, if you envision traditional Japanese music, I mm-hmm. feel like you can kind of envision what Bunraku music sounds like. So this specific play, the uh, Kana Deyon Shusingura, it was performed for the first time in Osaka in the eighth lunar month of 1748 and was quickly adapted to Kabuki, which is the, I mean, if you think traditional Japanese play, that's what Kabuki is. It is, you know, the beautiful face paint, super gorgeous and elaborate and generally fairly accurate clothing, painted sets. They're just very dramatic. And they're the kind where a lot of the times you'd see like a stage that goes out into the crowd and they kind of like dance along that. Like that's that's the kabuki. It's very dramatic, very, you know, there's kind of a dance style. This is very ignorant of me to probably compare it to, but I kind of view it as like a Japanese form of opera almost. Like it's not sound wise like opera at all, but just as far as the elaborate sets the Uh, dramatic reactions yeah it's not like a play in the way that you're thinking like an american modern play but yeah so it was it was a very popular show and immediately got transformed into kabuki play and there are 11 acts i was going to detail for you but i decided not to do that because you can google them and read them you know word for word online um you can check out the links that will be in our blog that will give you the exact 11 acts if you want so the Chushingura is the title that is given to any fictionalized versions of the 47 Ronin in Japanese literature, film, and theater. I did find a Japanese woodblock print from 1877 on an auction site called The Night Attack of the Soga Brothers. It's a triptych of the young Soga Brothers sneaking up outside the hunting lodge with their sworn enemy. So this is from the other, the one that you were talking about before. Yeah, the yes. first story. Yes, um, and just... It's just very interesting how the Soga Brothers tale ties in a lot to the 47 Ronin tale. And if you are looking up, they are frequently cross-referenced with each other. And so I just thought that was really interesting that it was included. And it's a really detailed, beautiful piece. 
it was sold. I don't know how much it sold for. I'm very curious. I mean, if it was it was from 1877, so I have to imagine the price. Like, it, I think it was fairly large too. I think it was three panels. Most of the woodblock paintings that I've been seeing for the Soga Brothers and for the 47 Ronin were like 500 or more. Yeah, they're absolutely absolutely gorgeous. It's really fun. We'll put that on our blog as well. The earliest surviving film depicting the Tushinguro came out in 1910. Whoa, that's um, early. Some records say 1908, but the majority that I see says 1910. So it starred Onoe Matsunoke, and he plays Oishi. It was adapted into a second version in 1928. They're both like the classic black and white silent films. The 1928 version was actually partially destroyed by a fire. You can still watch it today, though, because modern technology was able to repair it to a, a functional state. Oh, wow. Yeah. Was it like... I don't know, smoke damage? Is that a thing in film? I Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. There's a bunch of stuff between, you know, that time period to when we get to the more popular stuff. I'm going to skip some of them, but there are lots of other film productions. Like I said, at this time period, it was a thing where if your production company or your studio was not doing well, you threw out a Trishinguro story because it was so popular. It was pretty much guaranteed to like bring you in some money. Yeah, that's smart. It's smart. It doesn't always work. Some examples where it doesn't always work, but generally speaking, it's, you know, the masses want what they want and they want the 47 Ronin. Yeah, reminds me of how like, there's this crazy resurgence of Disney or even Star Wars, mm-hmm. but it's, well, arguably Star Wars and Disney the hype never ended once it began. You know what I mean? It's in a definitely way. more popular, like gen pop popular now yeah. than it used to be. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a classic for a reason. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to hop, jump all the way up to World War II. So in 1941, the Japanese military commissioned another rendition of the 47 Ronin. This film was a two-part jirageki film, meaning a period drama. They're generally sent during that time period, the Edo time period. And... I would say kind of when you think classic Japanese film, this is probably one of the types that you're going to think of. So very dramatic. Um, The heroes usually wear eye makeup. The bad guys have all messed up hair. And the type where, you know, they speak archaically. The villains never attack at once. They're all kind of like one at a time coming at the hero. Um, And some more popular ones you may be familiar with um, include, I'm going to probably mispronounce some of these, but Kagamusha from 1980, uh, Irazumi from 1966, The 13 Assassins, The Last Samurai. No, not the Tom Cruise one. Um, <laughs> this one's from 1974, and it's probably a lot better. Um, there's, we, honestly, we could do a whole episode on these films. They're, they're very interesting, and I kind of like fell cool. on a, a pit of, of wanting to watch some of them. And there's also... I mean, if you look up a list of Jirakeki films, there are a lot of them covering the Chushingura. Like it's, Whoa. it's just very popular. It's yeah. very popular and it's guaranteed to do something for you. So this film was commissioned by the Japanese military. They hired Kenji Mitsuguchi to create it. At the time, he was a pretty well-known and successful filmmaker. Some sources say that he was voluntold. It was kind of like the Japanese military was like, you are making us a film. Okay. Um, and then some say that, you know, he was an opportunist and they gave him a lot of money, five times the amount that filmmakers generally had to create a film at the time. It was 530,000 yen. Oh, I hope that's the true thing. Yeah. Good so, for him. Um, and, and, you know, it gave him the opportunity to do a lot. That was, you know, five times the amount that was used at the time. And Mitsuguchi was able to, because of the money he got all out in elaborate, detailed, historically accurate sets and beautiful costumes. And despite that, 
And despite the fact that he was a fairly successful filmmaker, despite the fact that Kushingura is pretty much always successful in Japan, right. um, this film, which is called the Genroku Kushingura, which means the loyal 47 Ronin, it did very poorly. It was a bomb. It actually... How? Um, so they released it one week before Pearl Harbor. Oh, that yeah. was... Yeah, which I can see <laughs> as a propaganda effort trying to get people to be like, yes, like, Japanese dedication and honor. And this is an exemplary version of that and like make them feeling more patriotic. But they kind of wanted it to be a little more blood and gutsy. And he went on the more like historical artsy take. Yeah. So it didn't do very well for that reason. It actually did so poorly that the studio where they filmed the first part of the film, because it was a two-part film, went like under because of it. It failed out. And it, it almost bankrupted the second one. Oh my God. Yeah, it did very, very badly. Oh, timing um, is everything. It yeah. really is. Yeah. So there's also commentary that his, you know, Mitsuguchi's serious hand kind of played a part in the failure. You know, there was not a lot of swordplay and violence. People love that. And that's not just, you know, it's not just a Japanese people loving swordplay and violence. Like people just, they want to see the blood. They like action yes. and gore. Yeah. For obvious reasons, the film was not available in America until the 70s. Probably still a little sore. Another interesting tidbit, you know, kind of talking about this era, is that during the Allied occupation of Japan, the Supreme Commander for the Allied Powers, known in Japan as the GHQ, also sounds like a bad guy. Just going to put that out there. Supreme Commander is never a good title. You don't want it. The portrayals of the 47 Ronin were actually banned because they believed that it promoted feudal values. Oh, which makes sense because, again, going back to the philosopher in the beginning saying that if you want to know anything about Japanese culture, you can learn it all basically from the Kushingura story. Right. Um, They're kind of the fear that like they're you don't want a film that is popular for vengeance after we kill a fuckload of civilians during World War Two. We committed a lot of war crimes. Just, you know, saying Pearl Harbor wasn't cool, but we killed a lot of civilians. Anyways, things to think about. My mom's going to comment on that. Things to think about for sure. (laughs) Um, so wait, the, what does, what was she that? has feelings? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so we're going to jump ahead, you know, a few decades to the first TV drama. It was an NHK Taiga drama by Ako Roshi and it was based on a novel from 1927. I couldn't find a whole lot about the novel or copies of it, but it exists. I'm fairly certain. Akaroshi was the Japanese Broadcasting Corporation's second Taiga drama television series. So Taiga dramas are annual, year-long historical drama TV shows. Oh, that was just okay. that was a thing that the Japanese Broadcasting Corporation did. It was based on Jiro Asaragi's novels, Hana no Shogai, and they depicted stories of the 47 Ronin. And then we're going to jump ahead more. When I say jump ahead, we are leaping past dozens of other renditions. This is a very, very popular story. I am shocked how prevalent this is. I didn't include, I put in like big ones that stood out to me. Like looking at our script, there's a timeline where I drop in a bunch, you know, of different titles. I did not include all of them. I included major ones that stood out to me and I'm not even covering all of the major ones, but there are a lot. It is a very popular story. There's more than 47. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So um, in 1982, just a fun little reference in Wolverine Volume 1, the limited series uh, written by Chris Claremont and drawn by Frank Miller. You know Frank Miller if you like comic books. In that, they actually make a reference to the Chushingura because Logan watches a private stage production of the story. So just that's a fun little... (gasps) That is fun. Yeah. I like that. In 1986, there was a ballet reproduction, the Kabuki, and it has, at least by 2006, had been performed more than 140 times in 14 nations. Wow. We're skipping past other opera versions, TV specials, miniseries. We're going to jump all the way to 2013. 
the influence for us doing this episode, unfortunately, with our beloved Keanu Reeves, The 47 Ronin. So this film premiered late, late 2013, more than a year after it was originally supposed to premiere due to drama. Huh? So the tagline, I had to share this because it's absolutely terrible, was this Christmas sees eternity. I feel like it's necessary to state that it came out on Christmas Day. So I feel like maybe it should have come out a little before. But anyways, um, so originally it came out 12-25-2013 and it was supposed to come out 11-21-2012. Okay. More than a full year after it was supposed to be released. Right. Now, I'm not going to try to argue the historical accuracy of this film because it does not have a lot. In some of the things I read that the costumes, they were fairly well researched and they did a, they tried to do a really good job of making it like accurate. There are mythical beasts and a witch with magic. So, you know, it's not known for its historical accuracy. It's not actually known for many good things. Now, the main character, Kai, played by Keanu, also did not exist. There's no, as they call it in this, half-breed, half-white, half-Japanese samurai in the original That's how they, I've been trying to figure out how they got away with trying to play him off as a full-blooded Japanese samurai. I mean, Keanu is not Japanese. No. He has Chinese, which I think any... They're not the same. (laughs) They're not the same. Um, Sorry for yelling. Okay, so... It's not the same. Um, They're not the same. They're very different and they look different. It's fine. So overall, I respect the fact that the majority of the actors in this film are Japanese actors and like true Japanese actors. Many of them were not even fluent in English. Oh, wow. We actually caused problems in filming it. But I mean, Hollywood has a very good history. And by good, I mean bad of whitewashing and just not giving a fuck. Like, well, you look close enough to that. I mean, Keanu being an example of that. But the fact that the majority of the cast were Japanese, like actual actors from Japan who act in Japan, very few of them were even known in America because they are not just like ethnically Japanese actors, but they are actors who act in Japan. So I thought that was cool. And I appreciated that, that they were able to do that. There were a lot of other things they fucked up, but that's okay. Are Um, we going to talk about those things? Yes, we are. There's a lot of drama. Now I have to say that I loved this movie. It was super campy. I love campy movies. I'm not going to say it was well done or historically accurate or that the plot was super strong or that I really felt tied to any of the characters, but it was campy and it was fun. And I love Keanu Reeves. So I liked it. (laughs) Now, I thought it was interesting. They actually used the Isle of Skye in Scotland um, for a lot of the outdoor, like, wide scene, majestic Ah, shots. So their um, film location was Japan. No, the film location wasn't, it was all over. But, Ah. like, specifically, Keanu was not in any of the shots from Scotland. But, like, the samurai riding their horses and you kind of see the mountains. Oh, I gotcha. So a specific landscape. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it was also filmed in Budapest and London. Now... This film was a bomb and bombed in Japan too. Just didn't do well. People didn't like it. Probably having it release the same weekend as The Hobbit, The Wolf of Wall Street, Hunger Games, Frozen, and Anchorman 2 didn't help because that's oh, tough fucking competition. My God. Yes. That if they was... had released it in 2012, I bet it would have done a lot better. Oh my God. Yes. So it didn't do well and it didn't do well in Japan either. It did so poorly. So the budget, production budget, started at $175 million and ended up being $225. Their box office gross was $151. <gasps> oh, my God. Painfully, I... painfully. Like, it left Universal in the red. Oh, man. Yes. There were a lot of fuck-ups with what could have been truly a really great film. Yeah. Um, I actually kind of lean a little towards the director's side on this, but we'll get more into it. So the director is Carl Wrench. 
This was his first time ever directing a feature film. Prior to this, he directed things. I want to say I, I saw something about Bush. He was a commercial film director. Okay. He was not a feature film director. They are two very different things. Yeah. So mistake number one, potentially hiring someone with no experience. I don't know enough about directing to say whether it's his fault because there are a lot of other things going on, but they hired someone who did not have a lot of experience. So that's number one. He also didn't get along well with Universal because they had two different ideas as far as the creative concept and vision of this film. Another thing maybe should have been discussed prior to picking a director. Probably. So making it even more worse, one of the producers, Scott Stuber, despite also having never directed a film before, insisted on shooting everything himself. This is stressing me out. It was a (laughs) clusterfuck of a mess. According to an article on Collider by Lisa Lawman, you know, he insisted on shooting everything himself despite not having ever shot anything before. And he actually ended up leaving the project before the end due to creative differences. There was, again, a lot of drama. Due to creative differences? So, <laughs> Carl Winch, the person they hired for the director, yeah, a lot of rumors said that he actually was not involved in the final edits either due to creative differences. Scott Stuber, one of the producers, left due to creative differences. So the lack of cohesion just was an issue pretty much from the get-go. And... Universal wanted 47 Ronin to be an action blockbuster. Think like, I think 300 was used as an example, which I could see. I have my problems with 300 and its historical accuracy and all that stuff. Um, It's a dick flick. I get it. But I (laughs) I could see 47 Ronin being produced in a 300 style film and doing very well. Yeah, I could too. They could have even removed all of the magic. And uh, anyway, so... Yeah, as soon as you mentioned to me that there was magic in it, I was like, oh, that would have been so much better if it was just historically accurate. I don't hate having magic, but I think they should have either gone full bore or not. And I feel like they kind of tiptoed the line between the two. But again, that could have been because of creative differences. So Rinch, the director, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. I did not look it up. I apologize, Mr. Rinch. He'll be Um, okay. He wanted it to be an intimate drama, which I think could have been really beautiful. And I would not have minded seeing um, there's like some romance in it fleshed out a little more. And then, yeah, so Universal wanted an action blockbuster. Very different than an intimate romance. So by the end, Grinch no longer had in hand in editing. Again, I don't know if he left, I'm assuming probably prior to the original release date, but I don't know exactly. But so Grinch left, uh, Stuber, who one of the producers, left due to creative differences. More problems. So they hired Japanese actors, which was fantastic, as you should do when you're doing a film about Japan. Um, did not speak English. And because of that, it caused a serious problem in the filming because they had a hard time with the script. They actually had to rewrite some stuff because they could not, they had a hard time with it. And they actually filmed a lot of it first in Japanese and then in English to help them with the pacing of it. Oh my gosh. So in my opinion, I like where they have people, a good example, one of my favorite movies of all time, it's a comfort movie for me, um, don't judge me for this, is Inglorious Bastards. I, I love, love Inglorious Bastards. If I'm in a bad mood, I watch that because I just like watching Nazis get fucked up. So, <laughs> um, but I like the Inglorious Bastards. They have people speak the language they're supposed to speak and they don't try and, like, I love that shit. Me too. Um, and I wish they had just done that in this film. I understand that it would have been an entirely Japanese film, but I don't know, maybe higher quality probably would have done better in Japan. Yep, Um. probably. Yeah, so... Despite the fact that it could have been really well, um, I actually also read one of the like fun facts about it was that the arrows and the close-up shots were actually museum quality accurate. Ooh, yeah, so, that's like, cool. Super cool. Um, and I wish they had kind of let Rinch do it the way he wanted to and have it be like an art house, intimate samurai drama kind of like yeah. instead of 
the 50-50. You could tell in watching the film, and again, I liked this film, but after reading all this stuff, you can tell that there was drama and that there were creative differences. It reads in the story, like you feel that when you watch it. Ooh. Because it doesn't really commit to either. That is something I feel like I would have a problem with watching it now that I know this. I have not seen the movie Ellsworth has. So knowing how much drama and creative differences that were going on in the background, and it's okay to have creative differences, yeah. but you have to come to a consensus on something and it has to be cohesive. Like you said, towing the line of like reality and magic, not committing to either. Yeah. It's weird. And, and also like, I don't know, before you hire a director, make sure that you have the same vision for the film. Like, yeah. Hey, we want to make this an action blockbuster. Not let's hire you. Oh, you want to have this be like an animate drama? No, we're not doing that. Maybe mm. talk to him first. I don't know. So that's really, I mean, there is a sequel to the 47 Ronin. It came out in 2022. It was directly released to Netflix to give you an idea of how not, not good it was. Oh, um, I have not watched it. I don't really want to. I pulled it up and I looked at it and I thought about it. But okay, first of all, it's called Blade of the 47 Ronin. Yeah. It takes place 300 years later. Oh, wow. So um, it's in a modern day world. Samurai clans continue to exist in complete secrecy. Nothing to do really with the 47 Ronin at all. There's no historical ties. The only tie to the original movie, from my understanding, is that the witch doesn't actually die and comes back to destroy all samurai. It did even worse than the original. I looked up the ratings. That, I mean, stinky, real stinky. As soon as you told me that it's in a modern day world, it kind of gave me the vibe of like, you know, Jason Voorhees in the city. Yeah. Like, I, <laughs> like honestly, come on. <laughs> punk, if you're going to do that, push it all the way out and do a cyberpunk version. That I might like. Don't oh. do modern day. I don't want modern day 47 Ronin. Come on. Cyberpunk dude. 47 yes. Ronin. See, that I'd watch. I would play that I think game. I'd watch that, I would watch like, that anime movie. style, like a yeah. cyberpunk anime style 47 Ronin. I think I'd watch that. Ooh. Yeah. That sounds really cool. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, there are other, you know, after the 47 Ronin movie came out, they were on America's side, some more popular things. There was uh, more graphic novels, which apparently was very well researched, written by Sean Michael Wilson and illustrated by Akiko Shoijima. Um, it's called The 47 Ronin, a graphic novel. I believe that was the Dark Horse series. It looks like it did pretty well. I, I haven't read it, but yeah, there's just, it's very interesting because it's still an ongoing, very popular I think it's going to be around for a very long time. I mean, it's been hundreds of years. Literally. Yes. It's so funny because I didn't know about this somehow. I did not know about this until you mentioned it to me, what, a week ago? Two weeks ago? Yeah. So when did we talk I, about this? I watched this film while I was preparing for another, I think the Wendigo episode. I was I was researching the Wendigo episode and I would put that on in the background and I watched it. I was like, oh, that was pretty good. And then the last clip was like based on a true story. And I was like, it fucking excuse me. <laughs> There's a witch in it. Um, so then I had to look it up and I was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. And just kind of like fell into the pit of, I mean, Japanese history before the isolationism ends is so interesting. And just, I think that kind of has in my completely uneducated, not a historian or sociologist belief, I feel like that has an impact on why their culture is so strong because it didn't really get to intermingle like or get colonized. That's really what I'm probably saying. Um, yeah, I'm definitely talking about colonization. Um, like other countries did. So like, it's just such a strong culture because it got to grow on its own like right. safety. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming now that I say that it probably has a lot to do with colonization. Uh, 
Yeah. But anyways, <laughs> super interesting. Very interesting story. I think it's a very good example of Japanese culture and history and just the idea of, you know, truly loyalty to death, sticking by your honor and your belief system. And there's a reason it's been popular for 300 years. Wow. It was definitely interesting to read about different vendettas. And there's, of course, smaller stories that are out there, too. And just the idea of valor and holding on to it against all odds. And seriously, fucking people shit up a year later. That's commitment. Yeah. That is long game revenge. Yep. Plotting that shit out. Yep. It's literally one of the most epic tales I ever read about. It's so epic. And, I, and I, there's so much that I wonder because, you know, obviously early 1700s. I just want to know how much has been molded by history and how much has become myth and how much is like straight up historical facts because people are involved and even, you know, government records of this kind of stuff can't be taken with a total accuracy because, you know, who knows really truly what the, what caused it. Like maybe they weren't planning on revenge and then they they heard the guy was going around and talking like, who knows really all the details, both I think kind of adds to the fun mystery. And it's also kind of frustrating that you don't, you're never going to know like 100% like, Here's the paper trail of how this shit happened. Yeah. Like, it's just, it belongs in the mythos of, you know, crazy shit that humans do. Holy shit. That was cool. Yeah. I did not realize how much drama there was about that freaking movie. I know. <laughs> I just, I, I like, I, I did a bunch of research and I tossed in a few things I wanted to talk about. And then just like more and more kept coming up. I mean, there's, there's probably a lot more yeah. drama behind it, but or it's also, actors. I mean, came at an interesting time for Keanu because I feel like. So John Wick came out in 2014, I think. Mm-hmm. So this was kind of like at a lull before he was like did, you know, obviously The Matrix was probably like the, you know, really what brought him into huge stardom. Oh, yeah. Um, 2013, Keanu wasn't like at the tip of everyone's tongue. And then it's really interesting that, you know, there was this bomb and then John Wick kind of like saved him from becoming the actor who was in that bomb of a film. I actually really love seeing these established actors really coming into their own as adults mm-hmm. and not getting crazy stardom when they're young. I mean, he's, Keanu's been in I think so that many plays films. a part in them being good people, truly. Mm-hmm. Keanu's a great person and I think absolute power cups, absolutely. And also, I mean, you probably get touched if you're a kid and like, I just, it's horrible, but I assume that pretty much every child actor gets molested. I just. Yeah. Thanks, Hollywood. Yeah. Thanks a lot, creeps. Um, So yeah, it's just, it's very interesting. I saw something the other day that was like, Keanu has turned down multiple offers from Marvel, but he accepted both opportunities to star in the SpongeBob film. I just, (laughs) I don't know. I love him. He's fantastic. I I, I don't hate him for being, um, you know not Japanese in a Japanese film because no. he took it with good heart, I'm sure. They kind of worked it into the story. I, like I could see, you know, it's it, interesting. Yeah, well, he, wasn't, he wasn't meant to be, you know, a full-blooded, yeah. Campy, interesting, great mythos. I have to watch it. You do. It's worth watching. I, like I enjoyed it. It's just, you know, I can see why it bombed, especially with the competition that it had. It didn't stand a chance. It really did not stand a chance. I mean- even just one of those films kind of takes it out of the running, but the Hobbit and the Wolf of Wall Street, you think you could have waited a week. I have done it a week beforehand. You wait and release it the same week. Even I, a week I before. feel like someone did that with malicious intent because come on, dude, that there's frozen may not be competition, different kind of like people are going to watch that, but yeah. 
but still. The Hobbit, because some people like said that they wanted it to be like they wanted it to be comparable to Lord of the Rings style. I just, you know, mm. from what uh, the descriptors you used for the film did not sound like it's. I in guess that I vein. can kind of see the comparison as yeah. far as like the mythical beasts and, and, watch and stuff, but. Yeah, no, that's no competition. Not even, not even close. Even Anchorman Two kind of takes it out of the running, and they're totally <laughs> different films. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Set up for disaster since the beginning, or unfortunately, because of the delays. And were the delays almost exclusively because of the creative differences? Yes. When they did the final screening in 2012, they were like, no, we need to go back to the drawing board and basically read it. Like we did some scenes. They redid a lot of stuff. And because they couldn't negotiate and come to terms with, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is the path we're going down. That delay fucked them. Yeah, basically. Who knows how well it would have done in 2012, but I have to imagine it would have done a lot better than it did yeah. coming out the same week in 2013. Well, because what films. was coming out then in 2012? I don't know. Not... Not, not the that. fucking Hobbit, man. I- <laughs> not, yeah, that one alone. If you're like, which one do you want to go see this weekend? The Hobbit. Like, Desolation of Smog. Is that what it's called? Desolation of so. Smog? I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. Well, at least the uh, the original story is pretty rad. Yes. So. I like the history of it. I think the history of it really, like, adds to the epicness of the original story. And as we've seen in the past, and I'm sure it'll come to fruition for the future, there will be more... Oh, renditions I'm, of I'm this. I'm sure there will be. They're probably we'll do, are in progress right now. Yeah. That might be Lord of the Rings level. Yeah. Mm. I, and I think that it could be done. Like, you can't go wrong with, I mean, you, obviously there's evidence you can, but you know. <laughs> yeah, there's really the, the story has a lot to it. And, and you know what? You can have a fantastical take on it. You can have it be fairly close to reality, but like, do it good, man. Yeah. Yeah. Decide on what you're going to do before you hire your director. If they had done this film and like had a Japanese director and had them all speak Japanese, I bet it would have like that alone would have kind of taken it up a level. I think so too. Just given it a little more like punch. We would appreciate something like this. Yeah, I don't know. And maybe probably wouldn't maybe have as excelled as much in American box offices. But I mean, but still, when did Inglorious Bastards come out? Oh, it's been a minute. I f- that did well. That had a whole bunch of other Inglorious like, Bastards was. Fucking Top great. five favorite oh, movies yeah. of all time. It's amazing. Man Upstairs also loves I, it. It's just such a good goddamn movie. <laughs> 2009. So yeah, that wow. did well. I, I, there's other films that I can think of, or I can't think of, but I know that I've seen that are largely done with like pretty significant portions in other languages along with English. They mm-hmm. did fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I would even say The Last Samurai has, well, wait. The Tom Cruise version? Did that have quite a bit of Japanese? Am I thinking of something else? I haven't watched it since I was a kid. I don't remember there being a lot of Japanese in it, but I it's been be a minute, so I could be I could be off base. I, just I liked it when I was a kid. As an adult, I look back on it, and I'm like, mm. I know. Yeah. Pick Tom Cruise for that one, huh? That yeah. That was your choice. You did that. Wasn't Ken Watanabe in it? I only know that I watched it because my dad liked Tom Cruise when I was a kid. and I like Ken Watanabe. You're cool. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Great actor. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, damn. All right. Yeah. Shingura, <laughs> the 47 Ronin, epic tale of Japanese history. And thank you for your patience with us, trying to be as accurate as possible and not butcher absolutely everything we're saying. Please this forgive be, us. Yeah. We're not linguists or historians. Ooh. We try to be respectful. You can tell us if we did stuff wrong. Just, like, tell us nicely because we're sensitive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well... I guess that's the episode. Yeah, that's that. Stay dirty. Stay dirty. 
make sure to give us a follow on social media. We are at Devil's Dirt Star on everything. We are on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, you name it. We are at Devil's Dirt Star.